are not available in audio online, um, and you could study, and there's some great challenging questions. In particular, this week, the very last question is a really good summary of kind of what James is all about and asks you to cha- challenges you really to go through and ask yourself some really hard questions about your faith if you confess faith in Jesus Christ. Um, James has been very practical. That's why it's very difficult. People like the book because it's kind of like, oh, I can understand this. It's not really, you know, difficult to figure out what James is saying, but then it's really hard because it's not difficult to figure out what James is saying, and we actually have to live it out. So we're in the last two verses, and uh, we'll get right to work. It should be uh, interesting. Here we go. Verse 19 of chapter 5 in James says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I want to prepare you now. I don't think a lot of people are going to like this sermon and the reason isn't, it's not my fault, it's James, so blame him. But as I was going through, I was, I was convicted a lot as I read this, and I think a lot of people are not going to enjoy the sermon because um, you're going to have difficulty not being the person maybe is bringing back, that is brought back, but the person that's bringing back, that's foreign to us. Um, he doesn't, James doesn't end his letter like the typical letter uh, if you read a lot of the epistles of, of Paul and some of his letters to the churches, he'll always end with a formal greeting or some grand benediction about God. But James is a little different, and that's why a lot of people think that this is a, a somewhat of a written sermon that James preached. Now, James is a doer. He's a guy that, that acts, that, that moves, and he, he wants others to, to do the same with their faith. And there are more imperative verbs, which are like commands action words. There are more imperative verbs per word in James than any other New Testament book. He's very much active. Now, he ends this book now, this this full study that we've gone through, with a command that I think is most difficult for us. Maybe more than any others. Now, the Bible describes us. When I say us, I'm going to talk about believers Because James is writing to believers. And when he talks about, when the Bible talks about believers, people who are sold out to Jesus Christ, people who believe that that Jesus died for their sins and they have been adopted into his family, there's certain things they describe it as, as a people, as a family, as a body. A body that's unified, a body that's interdependent upon one another. But I don't think that we, maybe intentionally, but we certainly don't seem to live like that. We talk about those terms a lot, but we don't seem to live like that, or at least we might believe a little bit differently. I don't think we think we're a people. We think we're a person. I'm an individual person. I'm not a people. We're not a family, oftentimes. That's not how we feel as we participate in this thing. It's more like a club with membership that I can transfer when I choose to or withdraw if I so choose. I think we are not actually one body. I don't, that's a foreign idea. We understand that a little bit, but we're more like a collection of parts that can work independently by themselves, just fine. Sometimes work in groups, but not normally. 
And it's very clear that our culture outside, just, just the, the world, if you will, not the world in sin, but the culture that isn't under the authority of Christ, I would say is, is one of independence. That's the things and the values it emphasizes. Self-reliance, uh, praising self-sufficiency, which isn't entirely a bad thing. And individual interpretations of things. That's, that's important. Your interpretation, my interpretation. And we live by, by mantras that are, believe what you want as long as it doesn't impact me, or if you stay out of my business, I'll stay out of yours. That's kind of how it seems we function, both in the world and maybe in the church. And so James has been teaching us that, that faith without action is, is dead. He uses very plain terms, which we think about a dead man, and there's not much happening there. Not much good's going to happen. But a dead faith is the way of the world. And a dead faith, James had talked about earlier in his book, was a false confession, just a confession of words without any kind of action. The opposite of that is what he's been trying to teach us, is that a living faith is the way of God, where you have genuine transformation of someone, and they begin to live differently. It's confirmed by the works that they actually do. The works aren't saving them, but it's the natural expression of them being changed from the inside out. And as we read James, this, this blew me away this week as I was sitting about it, or just sitting on it and thinking about it, is that most of the proof of faith that he's been trying to say will evidence we're believers is lived out in community. In fact, the things that, through James, God has commanded, all Scripture is God-breathed. So James is writing here, but God is speaking through James. If that's the position we believe in this church. We preach verse by verse because we believe every word was put in there by God to share with us. So these words, these commands, aren't just commands of James. They're commands of God. You cannot do them without others. It's impossible. If you're commanded to love one another, you need another to love. Makes sense? If you're commanded not to be impartial to people, you need to be around people that you can't be impartial to. Makes sense. Most of what James says, you cannot do by yourself. Although, I think that's what our mind, my faith is mine, my personal relationship. I'm going to do this. I don't know if that's possible. The implication is that Jesus saves more than just individuals. He saves more than just individuals, which, again, is a foreign concept, I think. Yes, we have a personal relationship with God, but according to Scripture, Jesus died for a church. He died for a people. He died for a family, a group, with a shared identity, and, here's the hard part, a mutual responsibility to one another. Now, in other words, this is why you're not going to like this sermon. We have more responsibility than just to read God's Word, to pray, to worship and make sure we sing and declare God's glory in various ways. Dare I say that we're actually called to be more pastoral to one another than we would actually ever admit. That's the pastor's job. The pastor's pastoral. I don't know. This is beyond service. This, this is 
we have a responsibility to participate in a very particular way that James is going to hit on here, beyond serving, beyond giving, beyond corporate gathering even. It's an active, mutual love for one another where we actually concern ourselves with caring for other people. I'm just talking about within the body. We have a responsibility. We have a shared responsibility for everyone who is in it. And we don't like that. Why we don't like that? Because we just want our own little world. Leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Don't get into my business and I won't get into yours. That type of thing. Don't look at my backyard. Clean up your own. Maybe you can glance at mine every now and then. Okay? That's kind of our, our vision of faith, our vision of life. Notice what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Sounds just like James. Starts the same way. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Every, every day. As long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitful, deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share something in Christ. Together. As one. Not just I have my personal relationship with Christ and you have your personal relationship with Christ and don't bother me about mine and I won't bother you about yours. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to get in people's faith business, if you will. It's very hard for us, just at a very base level, to care for someone else who's maybe not in our immediate family. That's very difficult. We uh, often justify rebellion and I call it rebellion because it's being commanded by God. So when you are not doing what God commands, that's called rebellion. However, we justify it, which is difficult as I was even studying myself going, okay. And we have really good excuses to justify our rebellion, to not love others and not to care about others. But I care. Well, I'm talking about care a particular way. We say stuff like, well, they don't want my help. They don't really want it. Or they're making their own decisions. They're going to go that direction. Let's let them go. Or I'm not in the business of rescuing people. If you're a Christian, James says otherwise. That is your business. Now, if you are concerning yourself, and catch this, this is going to be these beautifully hard words. If you are concerning yourself only with yourself, and I know a lot of people are like, well, I'm not that selfish, and so you'll dismiss everything I say next. Let's just stop for a moment and just say, let's just imagine you're not the worst Adolf Hitler-like selfish person there is in the world, okay? We're not going to go there. But if you just concern yourself holistically with only yourself, your own comfort, your own family, as you define it, your own needs, your own wants, your own desires then you are missing out on a blessing. Not that comes from good idea. That would be a good idea to start you know, loving people. But comes from obedience. From obedience to what God has commanded us to do. It is, if we don't do what James says, it is sinful. It's sinful. 
Now, I'll ask you a question that I don't know if you need a response right now. Because don't, don't cry it out, Aaron. You know what I mean? So, okay. Here's the question. Knowing that if you don't do what James is going to, we're going to talk about what James tells us to do, that it's sinful, how does it make you feel for me to tell you that? Second question, why do you feel like that? Think about that. I, I don't like that. Sinful. That's not sinful. Really? Let's see. If God is commanding it through James and we're not doing it, we're sinning. It's pretty, well, he doesn't say the word command in there. Let's just keep going and see. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you. So James begins here by saying, my brothers, as he has many times to, I think, correct them with gentleness. Right? Coming as as a brother, not as big, mean pastor. My brothers, I'm with you. I'm struggling with the same things. And he says, I'm going to teach you or do the very thing that I'm going to teach you. Right? He's trying to basically correct them in the same way he's commanding them to correct others. And he's doing it through this entire letter. He wants to bring, I think, those who hear his words, because the whole letter's been about that. A lot of you are talking about being Christians. You have to confess all kinds of things. But the proof is in the pudding, right? What do we see? And James is being very clear. I want to bring you guys back to obedience in the gospel. The truth of the gospel that you say you believe. Anyone who can, anyone can confess the gospel. It's very difficult to live it out. Now, James says, I love the words he uses. He asks if there's anyone among you. I like the phrase among you because the phrase among you implies that there's a people to be among. Okay? That there's a a implied relationship, a recognized relationship between people, some level of organized body, a group that is gathering together. And he says, this group you have, if there's anyone among you. And in this group, they are familiar enough with one another to know what's going on in each other's life. Doesn't mean you know everything that's going on in everyone's life, but you do have enough relationship with people that you know when they're hurting or when, in this case, they're wandering. There's an implied relationship there. It is very possible, very possible and probable, that you can be part of something and not actually be part of something. That's very easy. In our, in our Facebook happy culture, and nothing against Facebook, but I think it's kind of silly, it's possible to have hundreds of friends, thousands of friends, and have no relationships. It's very possible. Yes, I'm being playful in that sense, but that's very much our culture. We have this idea that we have relationships through these means, which I wonder, you know, they even call it friends, because it's speaking to the very thing that at our core we desperately want. But I wonder if all these things are actually insulating us from the thing we actually need, which is genuine, real relationship community. Because that's the hard. It's easy to, like, you could be my friend, you could be my friend, and all these things. I'll send you an email, but I won't talk to you face-to-face or take you out for coffee or get and have you over for dinner and talk about life. That's hard. Email's easy. Okay? 
But I wonder if that culture kind of insulates us from actually, we, we almost get tricked into thinking, well, we really have these relationships and we don't. We actually don't. Now, I've struggled uh, since we started as a church to wonder, I even struggled this last week, at what point your church becomes the kind, uh, the church becomes the size where people can hide, never connect with anybody and walk out. I used to think it was much bigger. You mock those larger churches. Oh, yeah, well, you can't have real relationship there, right? We're probably a couple hundred people, okay? It's easily happening here. Very easily. You can participate in the activities that we do. You can come on Sunday morning, and you can have zero relationship with anybody and still feel like you have relationship with people. And I'll tell you what, it has very little to do with anyone else but it is your responsibility. It's mutual. But the reality is it can happen. I used to think it was just the mega churches, but that's not. It can easily happen here. It's possible, catch this, to participate in the activity of a church and not only not have community, but not be saved. Look at Judas. And I'm not saying that everyone who is not a Christian among us is a Judas and ready to betray somebody. But I am saying that Judas looked like a Christian among many people to the extent the disciples were even surprised when he betrayed. So it's possible to be part of activity, not be saved. It is also possible to be saved and not act like the church. Maybe more possible. So, he says, those among you, anyone among you, wanders from the truth. And it's difficult to know who exactly is wandering here, because he uses this as vague term. It could be a believer who denies what he knows to be true. It could be you know, someone who doesn't believe and is just blind to the truth. But they're both at least outwardly part of the community. They're part of the gatherings, they're part of the small groups, they're part of whatever. They're there. And that community is clearly unified around particular truths claims, and as a result, a particular way to live, because there is something to wander from, right? There's a truth that you, there's not only a group to be among, there's a truth to wander from, not just leave the group, the truth, they're still in the group here. There's a truth that is biblical, and there are lies that are satanic. I know it sounds like charismatic freaky, but that's pretty much what you got. There's a truth that is biblical and lies that are satanic, even if they sound biblical. There are churches that are biblical and there are those that are not. I'm not going to make a list. Scripture gives a pretty good indication of how to determine that. There are people, individuals, who are believers and those who who are not, even if they say so. That's the truth. The truth claims of the Christian faith, and this has been um, watered down a little bit, the truth claims of the Christian faith, what the Bible teaches, are very exclusive. Very exclusive. There are lines drawn. Jesus drew some very stark lines. We don't like to talk about the verses where he draws the lines. We just think he's, you know, meek and mild Jesus, loving everybody, 
Well, he calls a lot of sinners out. And he says, this is sinful, this is not. This is loving God, this is not. The claims of Jesus are radical. He was the one that said the road is narrow. It's narrow. These radical claims that he makes requires radical faith. If you've ever read Matthew 10.34, this is what Jesus says, right? So you think, well, let's just kind of fudge on the truth a little bit. Let's just kind of upsetting people. Jesus said in 10.34, whoa, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's not war, but he talks about the tension of his name. Bring up Jesus Christ in any conversation. It is polarizing. It's polarizing. Britt Hume did that recently. Didn't work out too well for him, right? It probably worked out well in in the eyes of God for him. But in the eyes of the world, he got hit pretty hard. But he says, verse 35, For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, we see that happen a lot. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves uh, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoa. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It sounds like he's drawn some, some very specific lines saying, you can wander from me and not have me. That can happen. But Jesus loves everybody. <sighs> Jesus loves everybody, but those who reject him go to hell. Period. Now, today, there are many people, in churches in particular, more fearful of men than God. And there are many people who argue that knowing doctrine and focusing on theology is divisive and anti-relational. We need to, you know, not talk about that stuff very much. James seems to argue the opposite. James seems to argue that biblical truth is in fact the thing that unifies us. It's the thing that brings us together. And that truth gives us a foundation and a direction for all relationships. Now, Jesus himself said, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will enslave you. But we're so fearful of the truth, especially the hard truth sometimes, especially in relationships. I don't dare say something that might upset them. I wonder if you put the relationship now more important than Jesus. Truth is what frees us. Though our culture says it enslaves us. And as people begin to wander, I think our default mode sometimes is instead of holding to the truth, we start to question it. Well, the relationship's not wrong. Something must be screwed up with the truth. We must be misunderstanding this. We need to reinterpret this that's been understood for hundreds and hundreds of years exactly as it is here. Instead of calling people to turn from their sins, which, again, James is going to talk about, turn to the truth, they turn the truth into something sinful. 
say, oh, actually, that's just not the truth. This is. We just need to be affirming. And then we'll have good relationships. There are too many people in churches, and individuals, I should say, denying biblical truth while still trying to claim to have Christian standards. And you cannot have Christian standards without having Christian convictions. They're actually biblical. That's impossible. Now, what does it mean to wander then? I mean, what, what, what does that actually look like? Does it mean just to screw up and sin once and just to stumble? No. Uh, the de- dictionary describes wandering as to ramble here and there without any certain course, with no definite object in view, to range about, to stroll, to rove, to wander over the fields. I believe as uh, Romans 1 teaches, if you'd like to read that at some point, it means to reject the truth of God and to exchange it for life. We all live according to a truth. It's just whether it's the truth of God or the truth of the devil. And throughout his entire book, James has challenged our claims that we know the truth. and says, well, those who know the truth live a certain way. We must not prove it by reciting verses and singing songs and doing church stuff, because a lot of people can do that, but actually a new way of living. Because when the truth of God actually grips the minds and hearts of someone, it changes their lives. And you may have seen that in somebody. Hopefully you've seen that in your own life. Amazing grace. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was a wretch. The truth is not just something to believe. It's something that is done and it begins to dictate our behavior. And though we believe that relationships are very important, Romans 1 tells us that the rejection of truth leads to a life of chaos, especially in relationships. If you look at the fall in the Garden of Eden, the first thing to break down relationships, relationship with God, relationship with husband and wife, relationship with creation, and we think, well, you know, we don't need doctrine and truth. We need God's Word to have real relationships. Hello. Now, Paul, as he teaches a young pastor, First Timothy is a young guy, he's pastoring a church, we're going to be studying that later in uh, late spring, but he says this, he tells him or is teaching them what to do, and he charges him to hold to the faith as he's leading this young church. And he says, hold to the doctrines that are accord with the gospel as a primary importance. Here's what he says. He says, through the people that haven't done this, what's happened? 1 Timothy 1.19, hold to the faith with a good conscience by rejecting this, that faith, that truth, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And if one's faith is shipwrecked, this is my words, if one's faith is shipwrecked, then their meaning, their purpose, their hope, their joy, their security is all run aground or at the bottom of the ocean. Because faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, in the cross that says, I'm more sinful than I'll ever admit, but more love than I can possibly believe, that's what gives us our very identity. And if that's lost, you're really messed up. And you make a shipwreck of your life. And James says, if someone takes this person that's wandering, pursuing other truth that's not biblical, someone brings them back. He says, someone has the responsibility for anyone among us. Now, is that someone you? 
Is that someone me? It's certainly not our responsibility, I think, to be sin hunters. I've met people like that. They're gossipy, investigative, want to know everyone's dirt. But we are also not to be indifferent to those who are wandering, those who are around us. At the same time, how do you discern who is wandering and who is not? I mean, the funny thing is that identifying who is wandering doesn't take like superpowers. It simply requires a relationship with people. That's it. The reason why is because the evidence, the only evidence we have, uh, we cannot evaluate hearts. So the only thing that we're given to evaluate are lips, what they say, and their lives. Lips and lives. And when someone's lips confess false truth, we show them the Bible. And so when life lives out the truth that their lips are confessing, which is false, we show them Scripture. But even if we have those relationships, I wonder as we're looking to help in that way, we have to be very careful what our attitude is toward people because it's very easy to lead us into gossip. The very things James is kind of, through his whole book, teaching us about, criticism, gossip, partiality. He says, don't go there. Be very careful. But I like that he uses anyone and someone. They're very vague terms. And he, he seems to use ambiguous terms specifically as he just used terms elders a few, a few verses ago. So he could be specific if he want, but he goes very broad here. And he says, anyone and someone. And he seems, I think, and this is the hard part for all of us, to want to expand the circle of responsibility of the pastoral care of the church. Yes, there are pastors, but there are many people who are shepherding one another. That's what the implication seems to be. The church is supposed to be a fellowship of mutual care. Not just something you show up at and you hope the pastor's taking care of stuff and he rebukes you and he needs to rebuke and he cares for who he needs to care, encouraging and comforting where it needs to happen, exhorting where that needs to happen. That's not just my job or Jim's job, or Mark's job. It's your job for one another. Even outside of your family, your little family. If we love the truth, if we love one another, we do not just sit back and do nothing. If we love the truth, if we love one another, when we see someone wandering, we don't just sit back and do nothing. If we see someone confessing false truth, especially in public, we rebuke them because we love the truth. And the truth is Jesus. Would you allow someone to mock Jesus in your presence? I hope not. doesn't mean you call him out right there, but at some point, if you're in a relationship with that person, you do say something. Or if you see someone wandering, do you actually love one another? Do you love them enough to see them go and go, yeah, it takes too much effort. Luke 17, Jesus speaking again, says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's Jesus again. And the rebuke doesn't have to be harsh. That's kind of like, well, rebuke sounds like such a cold, hard word. Galatians 6, Paul says, all of our rebukes should be done with gentleness. 
It always must be done with gentleness. If anyone's caught in sin, you who are spiritually says, correct them in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them. Because our goal is always restoration. It's not punishment. It's not to make them feel bad and shame them. But I don't know if we struggle so much with, with knowing what to say or how to say it as much as we just struggle with saying anything to anyone. I mean, really, when's the last time you rebuked somebody? And they go, oh, you have this picture of rebuke being like, you are damned to hell! It's not, that's not rebuke I'm talking about. But at what, have you ever, in recent years, months, whatever, corrected anybody with truth? Not that you should be seeking to do that, but opportunities abound all the time. The majority of the world does not believe in Jesus. Do you understand this? So the majority of people you hang out, if you're hanging out with people other than Christians, are going to give you opportunities to speak the truth. Have you ever? When was the last time? Those in your own family. Those whom you love. I should say those who are easier to love. Well, sometimes more difficult to family. Let's be honest. But I think... It's not necessarily because we aren't loving. I wonder if a lot of it has to do with just fear. Just fear of what might happen. Because it's not as if, as if those people who are wandering think they're actually lost. And it's not as if they're passively waiting for you to correct them. You know, I hope this person comes up and tells me, shows me the light. So we have this, this fear of what might happen in the easiest thing for us to do in response to that fear is to do nothing. And a lot of times we respond to fear the opposite way. We get very angry and rebuke. It's very difficult to walk that middle road where you don't compromise the truth and you say some hard words maybe, but you say them in love. That's hard. It's easy to to scream at people and it's easy to do nothing. It's hard to stay in the middle and go, I know they're not going to like this, but I love you and I want you to know the truth. And do we screw up doing that? Oh, Without question. I've screwed up a ton doing that, of, of trying to balance that. Sometimes I come off too strong. Sometimes I come off not strong enough. And my goal, my hope is to reside in here. And that takes a lot of humility. And I fail at that at times. But just because the person doesn't respond correctly doesn't mean I don't have responsibility. Let me read a very scary verse to you. I like scary verses. Okay? I know. Let me give you another one. This one will pretty much make you wish you had a diaper on. Ezekiel 3, 17. This is a verse that is just, just, it's hard. This is a hard verse, and I love it, but I hate it. Because it just, it, it rips your heart out and just goes, yeah, this. Ezekiel, like, why Ezekiel? It's one of the, the, one of the prophets, right? 3, verse 17 through 19. Is that the one highlighted? All right. <laughs> it says this. I think I'm starting in 16, though. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. So God's speaking now to Ezekiel. Check out what he says. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Okay, we'll just stop there for a second. All Scripture is God-breathed. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed, coming out of His mouth. I guess it come out of His nose, but out of His mouth, right? Come, it's God's Word. He's speaking. Anytime you hear a word from my mouth, okay, 
Here it comes. Verse 18. If, son of man, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If I say you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That's the hope. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. What's that tell us? I am not responsible for the results. I am not responsible for how that person responds. Yes, I can say things to sound like a jerk and no one ever hears me. Granted. But if it's spoken in love, there is where my responsibility stops. God is the one that changes hearts. God is the one that transforms an individual for them to believe and accept the truth. That's God's job. But I still have a responsibility, and God will hold me accountable for that responsibility. For my brothers and my sisters. For believers and non-believers. And he says, James continues, you correct that person wandering, you proclaim to them, you try to bring them back, you may save his soul. Now, I just said, and Ezekiel, I think, pushes us to this, you cannot bring that, I cannot bring that person back. I don't have that power, no matter what I say. But the greatest hope for all people we know and those that we don't is that they will come to the cross. That's the greatest hope we have. It has to be. That's the only hope we have in this world. Our desire is to see people saved from hell, but more, saved to be with God again. Our desire is for people to know that Jesus died for sinners and for sin. All kinds. And there are lots of different kinds. That He shed His blood and it's sufficient enough to cover everything. But I did. it's sufficient to cover whatever sin you can imagine doing. That forgiveness and freedom from guilt and shame is possible in the cross. That Jesus lived a perfect life and he offers it to you because your life stunk and was never going to be acceptable to God. So he lived it life for us. And for those who believe, we must see that outside the church and even inside the church... There are a myriad of people trapped in sin and unable to turn from the error of their way. And we must know that the most important thing for them to do is not to just have a relationship and make them feel good. It's not even to give them clothes and food. The primary, most important thing for them to hear is the message of the cross. That's the most important thing. If it's rejected, so be it. But we have to come to a place Whereas we see someone struggling, we see someone addicted, we see whatever the problem is, that their biggest issue is not alcohol. Their biggest issue is not pornography or that they were abused. Their biggest issue is they need Jesus. That's where we have to be. And if you don't have that belief, it makes sense that you let people wander. Or that you try to fix them with all kinds of things other than the gospel. doesn't mean that no... Blessing comes out of counseling, that joy or, or, or 
you know, some kind of healing comes from other means, but it means ultimate, primary healing comes from belief in the gospel, period. As James declares it, healing comes from the gift of faith that God gives us. 1 Peter 4.8 says the same thing that James says, where he says it saves someone to cover the multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And the most loving thing we can do with one another is share the truth. Throughout this entire book, two intimately connected questions are clear, I think. One is, do you really love God? Do you really love God? And the second question is, if you do, then do you really love people? And what's that look like? It's against most of our natures, I think, to confront people in love over sin. To tell them that Christ died for all of those sins that they're doing as they're despairing. Or to tell them that, yeah, Christ died for that little sin you think is little. But as you sleep with that person or whatever, he thought it was most important or important enough to die for. So it's not a little thing to him. That's the most important thing to tell people. Because it gives hope and despair and it breaks down pride. And we either feel, I think, it's more loving to let people work out their own issues or avoid conflict altogether. And James challenges the wisdom of allowing our brothers, those among us, to wander away without saying anything. If someone is blatantly strained from the faith in their actions or lack thereof, it's our responsibility to help them get back on the right path. Can we control them? Can we force them? No. But we have a responsibility. And this view of love, honestly, makes some people sick. That's not love. And they imagine the worst that's going to happen. And they imagine that anytime you try to love somebody, that's just rooted in pride and self-righteousness. There's no way you can correct somebody. That's not what James is talking about here. Everything's done with gentleness and respect and even privacy. Because they love people enough to want them to see or to see them freed from their sin. And we'll close with this. Love does not mean that we sweep dirt under the carpet. In fact, I believe love is just the opposite. We call out all the dirt. And in calling people out, calling out sin, we call people to repentance. And we proclaim the truth of a loving God that cleansed us from all of that sin and brought us back into relationship with Him and sends His Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome sin the next time. We must never forget our message that we bring. And this is it. In 2 Corinthians 5, this is what we're about. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, and some of these verses will be very familiar to you. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. It dictates our behavior. Because we have concluded this, colon, here's what we have concluded, Paul writing, the gospel, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for those, I'm sorry, for him 
who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, knowing this, knowing we believe the gospel, this is James' whole point. Now that we've accepted this truth, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this, all that transformation, all of that truth-changing power is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us something, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, what is that? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, as people wander in and out of our lives, away from the truth, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, with our mouths, not just our hands. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Many refuse to love others because we don't feel worthy. I'm too broken, I'm too messed up to try and correct anybody. Because I have my own faith struggles, who am I to speak about someone else's struggles over here with any sense of authority? How can I help someone with their sin when I'm still a sinner myself? Good question. But such a qualifier would prevent anyone from helping anyone. Okay? We do not help because we have it all together. We help and we rescue because Jesus loved outlasted our failure. And we want our love to outlast the failure of our brothers and our sisters. Period. That's the gospel. That's the core of our church. And that, I pray, is what we proclaim with boldness. When sin was confronted with his sin, remember Cain? His response to God as he murdered his brother? Where is your brother, Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer, yes. Yes, you are. You're my keeper. I'm yours. We shepherd one another for the purpose of restoration and glory to God. Period. We are family, I pray, committed to certain truths, gathered together to stir one another, as Peter writes, to good works and to this kind of And as we take communion, that's what we celebrate. Communion is actually the pinnacle of our worship. It's where we come together and say, we are, we, it's, the, it's the place, as we say, where we worship as one. We have a meal together, fellowshipping in our united truth of the cross. It's a beautiful thing. It's not just individual. It is corporate. So I pray that you begin to see with different eyes this family that is Damascus Road, and you'll begin to love one another in the same way that communion represents Jesus loving us. I'm going to pray and close. Father, I confess to you my sins and the sins of our church if we have been unloving towards one another. And Father, I know that I have all kinds of excuses to not 
follow your commands, to disobey and to rebel. And Lord, you have proclaimed through the words of James that it's sin. Father, help me not to be a sin hunter, looking to criticize and to gossip, but help me to see people with your eyes. Love for the truth, love for them, wanting so much for them to experience salvation with you. May you be glorified by how we sing today, how we give today, and how we love today. In your son's blood we pray. Please stand, respond, and take communion with us. Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify. 